fair warning, uh, this may be a bit too soon, but as I explain this, I assure you that I did not put this illustration in my service last night. It was earlier in the week, okay? But have you ever found yourself watching a football game? <laughs> Bear with me. And wondering why the coach keeps calling the same ineffective play over and over again. Like I said, Thursday, not last night. If you're anything like me, the process goes something like this. It begins with a mild annoyance at the wasted downs that the coach is calling and, and wasting opportunities for points. It graduates into a frustration, particularly if my team is losing, as is often the case, until the third quarter it devolves into what I would call name-calling. As I start expressing my frustration to the TV as if somehow the head coach would hear me through that screen, claiming he must be out of his mind, or why are we paying him so much, or any number of things. Until finally in the fourth quarter, what appears to be that same play is called again, only it turns out to be a play-action pass that goes over the top of the defense and scores six points. And I enter the final step of this process, humility. As I come to recognize that there was a plan going on, there was something deeper going on in the strategy of the football game that as an observer, I was entirely missing out on through most of the game. And I want us to consider together what would have happened if the quarterback had given up on the coach's plan prematurely. If he had refused to run the play that the coach called or had chosen instead to call an audible rather than submitting to the strategy that his coach had for his team. That would be much like relying on human means rather than God-given means to accomplish spiritual purposes in this world. What happens when we rely on our own plans, our own means to accomplish the mission that Christ has given us as the church rather than relying on the power of the strategy that God has given us to accomplish the mission in this world? This morning, we're going to be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through 25, and I'd encourage you to consider that question as we read through that. Where is the power to accomplish the mission coming from? 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 25. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. Father, we've already sung about it this morning. This is all about you. This is not about us. Anything that we achieve in this life is as a result of your power and your wisdom and your plan. 
And that is just as true in the grand scale of things as it is in this service this morning. We need you. We need you to do a work in our hearts. I need you to do a work in my heart. We need your spirit to go forth and to change hearts and minds. We need your word to be declared powerfully. And Lord, all of that is of you. So we are dependent upon you this morning. We are asking that you would show up in a mighty way, that you would work on our minds and hearts, Lord, that you would work in this body through this message this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you know that Paul launched into his first section in 1 Corinthians, divisions over leadership within the church in Corinth. Now he shifts to a bit of a related subject, or I might say even a deeper, more more specific subject by explaining why the message rather than the messenger is the priority. Why the message rather than the messenger is the priority. As such, I've entitled this week's message, The Power of Foolish Preaching. The Power of Foolish Preaching. It breaks down like this. As I mentioned last week, we talked about verse 17 briefly, but we're going to go back through that here and take a deeper look here this morning. Verse 17, we're going to see how we preach. How are we called to preach? Verse 18 through 21, we're going to see why we preach. What are we seeking to accomplish? What is the goal of our preaching? And lastly, verses 22 through 25, we are going to see what we preach. What is the message and the heart of what we proclaim? But first we have to address briefly what we're even talking about. We see how we preach in verse 17. I'm going to read it again. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We talked last week how Paul was called to preach. But what is this preaching? What are we talking about here together this morning? There's a few different words in the New Testament that are translated preaching, but this word is actually evangelizo. Evangelizo. And does that word sound familiar to anyone? We have the word evangelize. Literally, it means to bring or to announce the good news. And so when Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, it means to announce, to evangelizo the good news. Now bear with me, I'm going to take a bit of a tangent here this morning, but I promise it's going to come back around and it's going to make sense when we get back to it. Who is called to this task? Well, what do we see biblically? I did a brief survey on this term throughout the New Testament, and it begins by talking about Jesus Christ himself in the Gospels doing this. He came to preach the good news, to preach the kingdom. In Acts, it extends to the 11 disciples and Paul as we see an expanding group of people called to proclaim, called to herald and preach the good news of of God and the good news of the gospel. And then in Romans 10, we find a really interesting thing. In Romans 10, Paul writes this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Preach the good news. Evangelizo the good news. Paul's point here in Romans 10 is that gospel hearing and therefore gospel preaching is necessary for salvation. That's the point he's making. That's why the mission's highlight is so relevant, and we didn't line that up. Gospel hearing and therefore gospel preaching is necessary for salvation. 
So far, you're like, okay, Brad, that all makes sense. And if we stop here in our study, this would be pretty easy, right? Paul was called to preach the gospel. This is the task of professional pastors and leaders in the church, right? Our job is to just bring people to church so that they can share the gospel with them. But wait, Paul uses two other or another word in Romans 10 for preach. We also see verses 14 and 15 that use a different term. Cariso. It means to herald. To herald. We understand heralding, right? The idea that one is speaking on behalf of another. In ancient times, there would be a king, and he would want to deliver a message to his people. So we would give that message to a herald. The herald would walk out in the street and say, hear ye, hear ye, thus saith the king. Right? This is that term. To herald. Now, where else is that term used? I'm going to put another passage. I promise this is coming around, okay? It's going to connect. In Luke 24, verses 45 through 49, we see this same word used. This is Luke's articulation of the Great Commission that we read from chapter 28 of Matthew. He says this, And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, this is that cariso term, to his, or in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then Luke goes on to explain in Acts 1.8 that they're start, going to start in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. He's like, thank you, Brad, I love Greek. No, not really, right? But is this much ado about nothing? Why go through the explanation of these terms? Because Paul is using these two terms synonymously for the declaration, the proclamation, the heralding of the gospel. And I think the point is this. While Paul and church leaders have a particular call to declare the good news of the gospel, this command to gospel preaching extends to every person proclaiming the name of Christ. Don't miss on this. Because as we walk through this text, we're going to talk about preaching. We're going to talk about proclamation, this heralding task. And it's very consistent throughout Scripture that this is not the task of professionals on a stage. This is the task of everyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ. Remember that as we walk through the rest of this. Okay, so go back to 1 Corinthians, right? From there, he goes on to detail two things about how we are to preach. We talked about these last week, but I want to look at them in a little more depth. First, he says we are to preach simply. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom. What this does not mean is that preachers and all of us in our evangelism are supposed to be as boring as is humanly possible. Some preachers need to hear that, okay? You're like, Brad, you maybe need to hear that. What it does mean is that we are not reliant on our charisma, our eloquence, our brilliance, or any other human ability to accomplish the purpose and the goal God has set before us. We are not reliant on our own ability. Because it's all too common today for people to look at the modern church and to say, it's a little outdated. This message, it needs an update. It's not connecting well with people. It's not connecting with the audience. Let me figure out how to put it in my own words in a way that's going to help compel people more convincingly. And so we have a tendency to want to change the message to make it seem more effective. We want to change God's strategy by putting our own play into play. But we're not the coach. We're heralds. And as gospel heralds, our job isn't to showcase ourselves and our own wisdom. 
but to get out of the way of his message. To get out of the way of his message. So we preach the gospel simply. Secondly, we preach the gospel powerfully. He goes on to say, we don't preach with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There is a kind of preaching, there is a kind of sharing that on the surface sounds good and would seem to reform people's lives or change their behavior, but it is ultimately empty of real power because it is devoid of the cross of Christ. There are speakers that proclaim words that sound really good and really wise and maybe on the surface appear to change people's behavior and action, but it's not the gospel. It doesn't have the power of the cross behind it. We never deviate from the gospel. We let the word of God do the work of God. So how do we preach? What is Paul's point here? What is the goal of our methodology for preaching? I would say this is his point. We preach dependently, displaying God's total sovereignty. We preach dependently, displaying God's total sovereignty. That's because we're dependent upon simple preaching to change hearts. Even what Paul later on here would say, our own foolish words in the wisdom of man. We're dependent upon prayer to do anything in this life. In our own strength, we're incapable of accomplishing anything of eternal significance. Ultimately, we're dependent upon God for everything in our preaching of the gospel. So the question I would ask you is, are you dependently preaching the gospel? Are you dependently preaching the gospel? Are you consistently dependent upon God's spirit and God's power and God's word to do work in the lives of those you're trying to share with? Or do you resort to your own wisdom and your own intelligence and even your own apologetics to get the job done? Again, he's not, he's not like getting rid of eloquence. He's not saying that apologetics is bad. He's just saying that the point, the method that God has given us is the simple preaching of the gospel. Hold on to that for a moment. We'll come back to it. Because we have to ask the question, why bother? What is the goal after all? What is it that motivates us to preach the gospel? Paul's answer here might both surprise and offend you. Look at verses 18 through 21 and we'll see why we preach. Verse 18 first says, We preach to distinguish the saved from the perishing. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. We preach to distinguish the saved from the perishing. He's saying that as the gospel message goes forth, as we are faithful to declare the gospel message, it will necessarily divide and distinguish people. It's folly to those that are perishing, but it's power of God to those that are being saved. Faithful gospel proclamation will necessarily divide. We have to keep this in mind as we share the gospel with those around us. It will necessarily divide. Every time the human heart comes into contact with the message of the gospel, that heart is either hardened or softened. It is either hardened or softened. I was watching a video the other day um, that I think is, is relevant. I don't know how many of you are familiar with... Uh, um, Kind of like, how many of you are outdoorsy people or enjoy kind of going out in the backwoods and camping and that sort of thing? One of the things that I find intriguing is there's these things called water purification tablets out there. 
And if you're out camping, you can use a number of different ways to purify your water so you don't get sick while you're out camping, right? You can, you can put it through a filter or, or you can boil it or you can do any number of things. But for those that are camping and don't have access to good water, for those in third world countries that don't have access to clean, good water, they have these water purification tablets. And what they do is they fill up this big bag and it's however many gallons full of water and they hang it up off a tree or whatever when they're out there. And then they drop a couple of these water purification tablets into the bag. And you look at the bag and you go, it's, it's, it's mucky and it's dirty and you know it's got bacteria and it's got all sorts of things that are going to give you a really bad time later on if you don't do something about this water. But they drop the water purification tablets in and automatically it begins to separate out the water from the other elements that are in the water. The addition of the element of these tablets separates out everything that would make you sick from everything that is clean and pure in the water. And you can get rid of that element, and then you can go and you can drink the pure water. It's kind of like how the gospel impacts the culture, the gospel impacts the life of a person. The addition of the gospel message naturally divides and distinguishes the perishing from the saved. It is one of the byproducts of our gospel proclamation. And I am painfully aware that even as I preach here this morning, that is happening out here today. In your hearts, in your lives, as the gospel message is declared and proclaimed, your heart is either getting harder to that message or it's beginning to show cracks and a softness to the message of the gospel. If you are sitting here this morning and you have been lackadaisical or have saying, I will deal with the gospel and the message of Christ later in my life, that's my parents' thing. That's somebody else's thing. That's neat for some other people. Let me warn you and caution you that as the message of the gospel goes forth, it is doing a work on your heart. The question is, what work is it going to do? Do not leave here this morning without considering what the message means for your heart. The gospel is proclaimed. We preach to distinguish the perishing from the saved. Second, in verse 19 and 20, we see that we preach to destroy human wisdom. I love this. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This is such a good reminder for us today, is it not? He quotes from Isaiah 29, 14, that emphasizes the futility and the foolishness of human wisdom in comparison to God. The Israelites thought they had all the right means to accomplish what God wanted for them as a people in their own strength. And Isaiah says, I will thwart or I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. You think you've got wisdom? God's going to put it to shame. He goes on, and I love these four questions, right? Where is the one who is wise? Right? Where's the one that thinks they've got it all figured out? Where is the scribe that has all the right answers? Where is the debater of this age that has all the right philosophy and reasonings? Has God not made the foolishness of man, or the, the foolish, the wisdom of the world? I love this, right? When standing against God, there is no wise sage. When standing against God, there is no scribe that has all the answers. When standing against God, there is no skillful debater. They're all foolish. Human wisdom is put to shame by faithful gospel proclamation. Faithful gospel proclamation will offend and it will embarrass human wisdom every time. And you'll be shaking your head or nodding your head and saying, yeah, I believe that, Brad. But do we really? 
believe that? Do we really believe that lives will be changed more by our gospel preaching than by our human schemes, by our ministry programming, by our political maneuverings? Do we really believe that faithful gospel proclamation will put to shame the wisdom of this world? I'd encourage you to consider that this morning. Lastly, in addition to destroying human wisdom and in addition to distinguishing the saved from the perishing, we preach, verse 21, to display God's power to save sinners. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believed. He's essentially saying that human wisdom doesn't lead to knowledge of God, right? In God's wise plan... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believed. The, the world thinks they have wisdom. They think they have knowledge. But he's saying that sort of wisdom doesn't lead to knowledge of God. Instead, it's the foolish preaching of someone like Paul that leads to sinners being saved. It's what the world views as foolish and as silly and as discardable that God chooses to work through. And this is going to be a consistent, plan, or a consistent theme that you'll see through the book of Corinthians. God chooses, for his glory alone, to work through people that the world sees as absolutely ridiculous. Through people that have no strength and no power and no influence in and of themselves, God says, I'm going to work through those people for no other reason than to magnify myself. He highlights God's wisdom and plan, and I love it because he infuses the reason for God doing this into verse 21, right? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Why did God do this? He did this to please himself. He did this for his glory alone. Because God is magnified when he works through inept and fallible people. But a faithful gospel proclamation will reveal God's glory. The world may say it's folly. The world may say it's silly. The world may say it's the wrong way to go about building a movement. They did back in the first century when Jesus first came. Right? How can you follow somebody that was hung on the cross? They made fun of Christian was a derogatory term. And yet, the gospel message took the world of its day by storm. Because faithful gospel proclamation will reveal God's glory. Which is the very reason why we preach. This is why we continue to do something that people say is outdated. Because we preach expectantly. We expect that gospel proclamation and the word of God is going to do something in the hearts of people. It's going to display God's saving power as he draws some to himself and as others reject that message. Or in the words of Charles Spurgeon, I do not look for any other means of converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to hear it. And he was writing years ago. And we think that somehow it's different today, but hear that. Today, I do not look for any other means of converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to hear it. We preach expectantly, knowing that the word will do something in the hearts of those that hear it. But are you expectantly preaching the gospel? When you share the gospel with your friends and neighbors and co-workers and fellow students, do you expect it to do a work in their hearts? 
Do you share it expecting that something is going to happen? Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that at the end of the message. But that's it for the how, and that's it for the why. Now Paul moves on to what we preach. And first he contrasts it with what the world claims that they want. Look at verse 22, and we see what we preach. First, the demand of the world. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews wanted miracles. It's not surprising, right? Many of the significant Old Testament periods were accompanied by miracles to affirm the messenger. We think of people like Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha. But clearly we know from the New Testament Gospels that the Jews were primarily self-serving in this effort. I encourage you to read John chapter 6, verses 22 through 51 this afternoon. We don't have time to read all the way through the section. But it's an amazing section. It follows immediately after Jesus has fed the 5,000. Christ has come and he has done this incredible miracle, this incredible sign, if you will, by feeding 5,000 people with basically nothing. And he goes away from that experience and the Jews come back to him and say, I think we need a sign, Jesus, just to affirm your message, right? We're totally, totally pure of heart here, but we just need a sign. He's like, I just, I just fed 5,000 people. They demand another sign. And instead, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. The Jews demanded a sign. They wanted another miracle. They wanted their stomachs to be filled with bread. And Christ said, what you really need is me. What you really need is the bread of life. And the point is that even miracles won't persuade the heart that is resistant to the gospel. We think of this in the story of Lazarus and the rich man from Luke chapter 16, where ultimately the, Laz or the rich man is looking at Abraham and saying, let me come back from the dead so that I can go back and tell my brothers the truth of this message. And Abraham looks at him and he says, even if you were to raise from the dead, they wouldn't listen because they have Moses and the prophets. And if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen to you even if you come back from the dead. The hardness of the human heart won't be persuaded even by miracles. But the Jews demanded a sign. They wanted something. Similar to this, but distinct, are the Greeks, right? The Greeks seek wisdom, he says. And we understand this, don't we? I mean, after all, American culture is downstream of Greek and Roman culture. We identify with the Greeks in this regard. We like reasoning and logic and human wisdom, in fact, our culture is just awash with so-called sages and wise men. We just call them influencers today. And forgive me, I'm going to get on soapbox here. Um, can I just say that it is very unlikely that a lot of real wisdom is going to be delivered through 280 characters on Twitter or a 60-second video on TikTok? Just going to put it out there, right? But even though we know that, we're so desperate for real wisdom that we grasp at it even there, don't we? We look for it to people that have no credentials and no real reason to be listened to. But that's actually a lot like the ancient Greek world. I love this quote that I ran into from Chrysostom. He's describing the Greek philosophers of his day. We tend to think of names like Aristotle and Socrates and, and those sort of names with high regard for their intellectual wisdom. But this is the way Chrysostom describes the Greek philosophers that would run around and espouse their eloquent wisdom. They croak like frogs in a marsh. They are the most wretched of men because, though ignorant, they think themselves wise. 
They are like peacocks, showing off their reputation and the number of pupils as peacocks do their tails. And we laugh. They were more concerned with style than with substance, with the way they said something than with the substance of what they were saying. They were more concerned with the number of followers they had than the truth of what they proclaimed. Tell me that doesn't sound like us in our culture. Seeking after human wisdom, more concerned with the number of followers that like our message than the actual truth and substance of what we are saying. And as a result, both the Jews and the Greeks respond naturally in their flesh to the gospel. It's, look at verse 23 and 24. We read this. But we preach Christ. We'll come right back to that in a moment. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The Jews wanted a sign. They wanted a miracle. And so they stumble over the person and work of Christ because he doesn't meet them in their expectations. The Greeks, in their human wisdom, they, they want wisdom. They want the truth, right? Or so they claim, but they find the message of the gospel to be folly and foolishness. Just like us in our world, the natural response of the human man is to look at the message of the gospel and say, that is ridiculous. In your conversations with people, or maybe in your own heart, have you found yourself going, I just need something miraculous to prove to me this message. Or I just need to understand every nuance of theology and have it all straight and understand in human wisdom the way all of this works and then I'll accept the message of the cross. It says, the Jews stumble over it and the Gentiles think it's folly. But to those that are called, those that have been called out by Christ, that have been predestined before the foundation of the world, that know Jesus' voice and respond to it, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of our message is in the cross of Christ. We must never let go of that. The power in our message is not in our means and our eloquence and our human ability. It is found in the cross of Christ. It doesn't matter how gifted or how able or how impressive or how powerful or how wise the person proclaiming it claims to be. What matters is the content of the message. And in that way, it's much like a muscle car. Some of you are probably car gurus out there. Your car may have 400, 500, 600 horsepower, which when the speed limit is 65, I just don't really see the point. But regardless of that, if I were to take the battery out of your car, it's going nowhere. You can have 600 horsepower behind the hood. Without a battery, you're stuck. Without the message of the cross of Christ, nothing is going to happen in this world. And on kind of a side note, it's interesting to note that Paul looks at the distinction between people very differently than the world would have. Notice that he says Jews and Greeks both reject the message of the gospel. Jews and Greeks both have their own way of living, but to those that are called both Jews and Greeks, to a church that would have been quick to distinguish based upon ethnic background and divisions in the church, Jews over here, Greeks over here, Paul says none of that matters. There are those that are called, and there are those that are not. There is a unifying effect when remembering that we all stand the same before Christ. And then I love his principle here in verse 25. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What a way to end it. 
What a reminder that we all need to hear. He's, he's not saying that God is foolish or weak. We know from our theology classes that God is neither capable of being foolish nor weak. But he's using a literary device to say, even if God was capable of weak, being weak, his weakness would be stronger than your strength. Even if God was capable of being foolish, his wisdom would be wiser than your wisdom. So why are you employing your own means to accomplish God's purpose when he's given you the means and the power to do it? So the question we have to ask is, what do we preach? What are we called to preach? We preach Christ, displaying God's perfect Savior. That's all we have. That's the substance of our message. That is the heart of our purpose. That is the reason we exist, and that is the call to go and share others about, or to others in the world about this person of Christ and what he's done in our lives. So are you Christ-centered in your gospel preaching? Are you Christ-centered when you talk about the gospel to unbelievers? Or do you have a tendency to talk about philosophy and to talk about other things and to avoid the embarrassment of the person and work of Christ? Because those people are going to say, well, you believe you rose from the dead, right? That doesn't really happen. Or that's just foolishness to think that grace is the way you achieve holiness and a relationship with God. Are you Christ-centered in your gospel preaching? And all of this is precisely why gifted people aren't the point. Last week he says, you follow Paul, you follow Apollos, you follow Cephas. It's not the man. It's not the messenger. It's the message. It's the point. And as a result, we preach dependently because everything we do is entirely reliant upon God working in and through us. We preach expectantly, thinking something is going to happen when I declare this gospel message in the heart of those that are hearing it. And most importantly, we preach Christ, the person and work of Christ as the message that has the power to transform hearts and minds. Which leads us to our key point for this week. And if you're new to the church, if you started attending recently, let me explain what's going on here. Uh, when we started handing out some booklets to the children here in the church service, we had some booklets that would help them take notes during the service. And uh, I started preaching totally oblivious to there being a section in the booklets that said key point. And as a result, some of the children said, you know, Brad, there's a section here and we have no idea what we're supposed to put in that section. I said, you know, I should probably have a key point. So if you're new, this is the key point. This is the one thing that if you forget everything else I've said, if you've been sleeping for the last 35 minutes, remember this. Though it is foolish to the world, we preach the cross of Christ to save sinners. So it does the work. Why we preach is to save sinners? Because we expect something to happen. How we preach is dependent upon God because we don't have the strength in our own power. And we preach the center of our message, the reason for our existence is the cross of Christ because that is the only thing that will save sinners. But I, I fear that even as I say that, for many of us, the problem isn't really so much how we're preaching the gospel as it is if we are preaching the gospel at all, right? And this is the natural time that in most Sunday school classes or, or messages, the point would be to make everyone feel really, really bad and guilty so that they go out and share Jesus with somebody before they get home. But let me flip this around a bit. Because we know we are to preach the gospel dependently, we know we are to preach the gospel expectantly, and we know we are to preach Christ. 
But let me just suggest to you that if you are like all the rest of us as believers and you struggle at times to share the gospel with those around you, you may struggle to share the gospel because you're not dependent upon Christ. Even Paul himself in other New Testament books would ask that people would pray that he would have the boldness to share the truth of the gospel. This this apostle of Christ that proclaimed the gospel around the known world asked that God would give him the boldness to share because he suffered from being scared and anxious to share the gospel with others. And so I would wager that if you find yourself struggling to share the gospel, it may be because you don't realize you're dependent upon God for the strength to do it anyway. Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel? Do you pray that God would give you the boldness in the moment when you feel the leading of the Spirit to say something? Or possibly, you struggle to share the gospel because you're not expectant. Maybe you've experienced times in your life that you're like, I shared the gospel with somebody and all I got was ridicule. Nothing happened. Nothing changed. So as I go into it and I share, what's the point? Because I haven't seen it change somebody's heart. The truth of God's word is that the message of the gospel is going to go forth in power. It's going to change hearts, but you don't get to control what effect it's going to have on that heart. And so if you struggle to share the gospel, it may be because you're not expecting anything to happen. And you need to be reminded by the word of God that the word of God and the gospel message changes lives. Remember what changed your heart and your life when you were first saved. Finally, if you struggle to share the gospel, it may be because you're not Christ-centered in your life. Because you don't have a personal relationship with Christ. Or because you're not walking with him day in and day out. If your life doesn't revolve around Christ, if your life and your mind isn't focused on Christ, you're going to have a very difficult time sharing out of your enthusiasm for Christ with others. We as people naturally worship things. If we love a product, we share it with our friends and neighbors. If we love a person, we express it to them. Maybe us men a little more often than we, you know, we should, right? Okay? If we are worshipers and are enthusiastic about something, we will share it with others. If you struggle to share about Christ with others, it may be that you're not Christ-centered yourself. I'd encourage you to consider these things, because a lot of times we find ourselves struggling to share the gospel, and we think it's just a matter of, I just need the right tool, I just need the right method, I just need the right tactic. Part of the reason we're offering the evangelism class that we are over here in room one is because it isn't so much about how we go about it as are we looking for ways to do it. Are we praying that God would give us the ability? Are we dependent upon his spirit to share when we do? Are we expecting that something is going to happen? And are we so focused on the person and work of Christ that it can't help but come out in our lives? So ask yourselves, am I dependent? Am I expectant? And am I focused on Christ? I want to wrap up this message this morning where we started with Romans 1.16. I asked Troy to include that in service order because I think this message, this verse so well articulates what our goal should be here. Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. 
Are you ashamed of the gospel? Do you believe it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes? Let's pray. Lord, I confess that this is convicting for me and it's bothered me all week that I'm hesitant to share the gospel with those around me because too often I rely on my own wisdom and my own strength to change hearts and minds rather than relying upon the word of God and the message of the gospel. Lord, make me dependent, make us dependent as a church upon you to see sinners saved, to see the gospel go forth with power. Lord, help us to be expectant. Help us to expect that when we share the gospel with those around us, you're going to do something in their hearts and minds. We don't have the ability to control it and we can't dictate what happens, but Father, we are called to be obedient and to expect that you will do something. And Lord, help us to be Christ-centered. Help us to be so infatuated and so awed and wondered by Christ that we can't help but share with those around us how amazing he is and how amazing what he's done in our lives is. Lord, make us people that are faithful to publicly preach the truth of the gospel because it is the only thing that saves in this lost and dying world. Not for our own sakes, but for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.